Let's open our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been looking at the nature of love, a word that the world loves to overuse and misuse. We've looked at agape love. And we know that it is the distinguishing mark of the believer. It's the irreducible minimum for the Christian to love one another. It's easy to say, I love you. It's sometimes difficult to practice that. I read about a guy who was going to a masquerade party, and unfortunately he dressed up like the devil. And so there he is driving in his car, dressed like the devil, going down the street, going down the freeway. And he gets out because it's far away from his home, and he goes out to a, a country road that's rather isolated. It's, it's a rainy evening, and he doesn't have control of his car. He goes off into a ditch, can't start the thing again, so now he has to get out of his car and look for help in a devil costume. Well, there are no houses where he's at. There's only a, a little old country church. And it happened to be the night they were having a prayer meeting. So as he comes to the church and it's raining and thundering and lightning, he hears them singing and he goes up to the front of the church and just as he gets to the front door to open it, there's this huge flash of lightning and clap of thunder that goes off. Now that's startling enough for to the people that are in church, but imagine being startled by the thunder and lightning and the door opens and in walks the devil. And they all ran off out the other door. <laughs> Except for one little old lady. She couldn't move fast enough. And she walked right over to the devil shaking. And she raised her cane in the air. And she said, Mr. Devil, there's just one thing I want you to know. I've been a member of this church for 40 years. But I've really been on your side the whole time. <laughs> it's easy to say I'm a Christian. In fact, 85% of Americans say they are some form of Christian. But we wonder whose side are they really on. One of the common criticisms that unbelievers have toward Christians is that we don't live up to our faith that we profess by our demonstration of love toward others. And I've always found that interesting, that even unbelievers who have a very limited and even warped view of what Jesus said, at least they know enough to know that of all things Christians ought to do, the one thing that is paramount is that we love. In verse 4 of this chapter, we come now to a list. It will continue for a few verses. It's a list of little pithy sayings and enumeration of 15 verbs, uh, a comprehensive, full-orbed description of love. Verses 1 through 3, that's what we covered last week. That shows what happens when love is absent from a life, from a person, from a church, from a marriage. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Though I prophesy and can understand all mysteries and knowledge and have all faith so that mountains can be removed, but if I have not love, I am nothing. 
Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. That's what happens when love is absent. But now we come to the section, this is what happens when love is present. This is what it looks like. And to do that, Paul gives positive and negative descriptions. And and here's just a little outline. Here's the structure of the verses coming up for this week and next time. He begins in verse 4 with two positive um, characteristics, two positive statements. This is what love is. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Then he lists eight negative descriptions. This is what love is not like. This is what love does not do. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but in the truth. Then it's followed by a counterbalance of five more positive characteristics. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It's a great little section, and as I studied it over and over and looked at it in different ways, it seems to me, and that's why I've given it the title that I did, Five Facets on the Diamond of Love, it seems to me rather like uh, a gem expert, a lapidary, a gemologist, who would study a precious diamond and spin it carefully around in the light to notice its shape, its color, how it refracts and reflects light, and all of the intricacies of its properties. And so we will do that with love. We will look at it carefully, every facet, how it looks, what it it shouldn't act like and should. But today we only have time for one verse. But in that one verse, verse 4, there are five facets Two that show what love is and three that show what love is not. This is what love is. This is what love is not. Positive light, negative light. So verse 4 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Now somebody might ask, why does Paul, in speaking about love, this great virtue, Why does he say this is what it's not like? Why use negative descriptions? I can only answer that by supposing that the virtue of love is so great, so unique, so different from all other things. In fact, that's what he says in verse 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And it's such a unique gem. However, we are so familiar, more familiar with the negative side of our character that it's sometimes easier to understand what something is by telling you what it's not. Because you might be able to relate to the positive characteristics. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. But when you go through the negative characteristic, oh yeah, I know what that's like. And so love stands out from all of that. And this is what Paul is simply doing in this section, I believe. He's showing that love is not vague. It's not a vague feeling. It's not some nebulous kind of sensation that we have when we're with a special person where we have this warm, tingly, fuzzy experience. You can get that with a good cup of coffee. (laughs) Love's a whole lot better than that because love actually does some things. It practices kindness. It practices patience. 
Love refrains from acting envious and boastful and prideful. So let's go through this little list in this one verse, shall we? Let's look at the diamond in its positive light. This is what love is. Love suffers long and is kind. That word suffers long, that's a great translation, by the way. It is much better than the generic translations that simply say love is patient. I think it waters it down too much to say love is patient. Because literally the term is love is long-tempered. And so suffers long really fits. Long-tempered. It's a word macrothumia in the Greek. It comes from two words. Makros, which means big or long. And thumos, which means heated or heat or temper. Long-tempered, long-fuse, slow to get angry, letting something burn a long time before you would react to it. That's what it means. In fact, it's a special word used with dealing with irregular people, problem people. You know the kind that you just don't like to be around, they get on your nerves, and you start getting worked up? That's when you need macrothumia, long-suffering. By the way, it happens to be one of the characteristics that describe God so beautifully. The Bible says God is slow to anger. Peter said God is long-suffering. Aren't you glad? God has to put up with a lot of stuff with us, doesn't he? And he does. All of our failures, all of our habits, all of the times we fall and go, I'll never do it again, promise. Then we do it again, five minutes. God is long-suffering. There is a, a great story that's told about Robert Ingersoll, who was an atheist in England years ago. He was an infamous atheist in that he prided himself in his blasphemy, in his atheism. And he would, he would command large audiences. And years ago in England, it was pretty conservative. So to go up in front of an audience and blaspheme God was quite a shock, but he would do it. And he would say things like, there is no God and I shall prove it tonight. I'm going to give God five minutes to strike me dead. And he'd blaspheme God some more, take his pocket watch out, set it on the podium, and then just wait in dead silence. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a speaker look at you for five minutes without saying anything. It's very unnerving. <laughs> but Ingersoll did it. And for five minutes, he waited. And when it was all over, he took his watch, put his hand down on the podium and said, See, there is no God, and I am very much alive. And people responded to this. One guy came up to uh, a man, a preacher by the name of Theodore Parker, after one of these little stents, and he said, you've got to admit Ingersoll proved something tonight. And Theodore Parker responded, you're right, Ingersoll did prove something tonight. Ingersoll proved that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of the Almighty in five minutes. God is long-suffering because God is love. Now, do you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about the meaning of agape love? We said that agape love is a strange word to the Greeks. It's not found in, in the pagan Greek literature ever once. 
It's found only once in classical Greek. It seems to be virtually a Christian invention. It's used profusely throughout the New Testament to describe love, God's love especially. Well, it's the same with this word, macrothemia, long-suffering. It is a word that is not found in most of the volumes of Greek literature. It's like the word agape. And that is because macrothemia, or long-suffering, was never considered a virtue. It was considered weakness. To suffer long when a person is acting like a bonehead, to not react to that was considered weakness. It was considered a virtue to attack back, to lash back. In fact, one of the great Greek minds, Aristotle, said it is virtuous not to tolerate an insult, but to retaliate at even the slightest offense. So to be long-suffering was, was a vice. Vengeance was considered a virtue. And I've got to say, I don't want to be too jaded on this, but I think not much has changed. I think in our culture, the heroes are often those who strike back. Have you been to a movie lately? Who's the hero so often in the, the thrillers, the dramas? It's the guy who says, Hasta la vista, baby. Or, go ahead, make my day. You know, it's the guy who stands up and would retaliate, even in vengeance. We call it evening the score. And frankly, when we hear or see of such stories depicted, our old nature goes, yeah, that's good. He's my hero. The exercise of power. There was a gal who was a maid, worked for a wealthy family. She got fired from her position. She really needed that job. It was her, her security. Well, they let her go. And when she was leaving and she was facing off the family, she took $5 out of her purse and threw it at the dog, Fido. And the owner of the house said, why are you giving my dog $5? She said, I never forget a friend. That's for all the years that the dog helped me clean the dishes. <laughs> See, and deep inside we go, that's cool. <laughs> but now the flip side, the other side, the opposite side. Love suffers long. Paul said that we should uh, forbear. There's a good word. Forbear one another in love. That's long-suffering. Long-suffering is when you are willing to let your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. You want to lash out, but you don't. Jesus put it this way. You'll be very familiar with this section of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said in the law of Moses, if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. That's Greek thinking, by the way. If a tooth gets knocked out, knock out the tooth of the person who did it. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. If you are slapped on the right cheek, turn the other cheek too. Now we have heard that so long, I wonder if that shocks us like it ought to. I mean, come on, you read that and you ought to think, is he serious? Is Jesus really for real here? Listen, I grew up with three older brothers. And 
we would often, well, we'd slug each other a lot. It got to be like a daily routine. You know, we had the bumper sticker, have you slugged your brother today? I don't ever remember turning the other shoulder. When my brother would slug my neighbor, hey, wait, no, wait a minute, don't go away. You forgot this one. This is radical. But think for a moment now, what did Jesus do when he was lashed out at? When he was beaten, when they put thorns on his head, when they spat on him, when they mocked him? If it would have been us, it would have been quite different a reaction. I probably, and obviously it's a good thing I'm not the Lord, but I probably would have said something like, just wait till after the resurrection. In three days, I'll be back. And I know where you live. But what were Jesus' first words on the cross? Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. I wonder, husbands, when was the last time you prayed that? After you were insulted, perhaps, by your wife. Or women, when your husband said something so insensitive, you just said, oh, Lord, forgive him. He didn't know what he's saying. He's angry. Love suffers long. Now, I want you to take the long off for just a moment. We'll, get, we'll, we'll tack it back on in a moment. Just look at that one little sentence. Love suffers That's true, isn't it? True love is willing to suffer. Any kind of relationship we enter into, we know that there's going to be some form of adjustment, some kind of suffering. But then tack the long on with that in mind. Love suffers long. Now that implies something about the world you and I live in. It implies that we live in a fallen world filled with pain, hurt, and insensitivity. Then there's going to be plenty of time where your patience is going to be tested By words that people say when they're angry. By looks that people give you when they're tired. By the way people drive. I still struggle. Because I'm going down the road, I know where I want to go, and I'm giving everybody else advice, at least secretly in my mind, of what they could do at that moment to just sort of fix the traffic a little bit. And then the Lord reminds me, love suffers long. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. The other day I was driving down the street, no joke, and there was a gal putting on makeup while she was driving. Love suffers long. (laughs) Or the people with their head cocked, the cell phone, the books open, you know, it's like, it's not an office. I heard a story, I read it in Reader's Digest. A gal named Addie walks into a woman's restroom and uh, she goes into a stall and a voice comes from the next stall. So, how you doing? It was very awkward for her. She wasn't used to that. And she said very tentatively, fine, how are you? And uh, no answer, but just a second later, so... What you been up to lately? Nothing. Uh, What about you? What have you been up to lately? And then finally the other woman in the stall said, Would you please be quiet? I'm on the phone. (laughs) 
Love suffers long. And it says then, second on the list, love is kind. Love is kind. That word means helpful, benevolent. Now look at these side by side, the two facets of the same diamond. Long-suffering is passive. Kindness is active. Right? To be long-suffering means that uh, you're not going to do something. You're not going to react. But to be kind is to go now another step and to do something helpful, beneficial to another person. You see, love isn't just not doing retaliatory things. You can't measure love by that alone. You can't. You can't say, well, I love my wife. I haven't beat her. I didn't throw anything at her. I love my children. I don't make them sleep outside in the winter. I love them. No, love is kind as well. Jesus, in the same section of the Sermon on the Mount that I just quoted, he went on and he said, If you're ordered to court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. That's also radical. Think of ways to be kind to people who are demanding. That's tough. That's the way I see it. And... uh, I pray, God, that I might live it. We live in an unkind world. It's so unkind that, you know what? If you and I dared to do that, if we would decide that we're going to do kind things to unkind people, you know how noticeable that would be? You know how extraordinary, how even extraterrestrial that would seem? (laughs) Who are you? Why did you do that? It was so kind. Because it's a world we don't live in. Now, the first test of kindness is, is where? You know the answer. It's the home. It's the first real test of kindness. It's with wives and husbands and parents and children and extended relatives. The second test of kindness is in the church. We're to love everybody, but we're to love especially our Christian brothers. We're to be kind to everybody, but we're to be kind especially to our Christian brothers. We're to love everyone, but... Jesus said, by this the world shall know you're my disciples, not by the love you have for the world, but by the love you have for one another. They want to see it work with us. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to our Christian brothers and sisters. That's the second test. The third test of kindness is then with everybody else. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those who live next door, work at the next desk, live in the next country. That's your neighbor. And that's a tough one as well, because you remember somebody came up to Jesus and said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. A man went from Jerusalem to Jericho, got beaten up, fell among thieves, was left half dead at the road. Two religious people passed him by, but a Samaritan came and helped him. And so your neighbor is anyone you see that has a need. That's kindness. I want to read a a little paragraph of a letter I got. It's from a gal in this community. It's a wonderful letter. And thank the Lord I get enough of these letters. It just gives me such hope, especially for the next generation. Uh, She wrote a letter after one of our youth groups came over to help clean up the neighborhood. And this is what she says. I've always heard good things about Calvary, and my experience last Saturday confirmed the good news. A large group of your youth came through the neighborhood raking leaves and cleaning up, not for money, but for Christian love. 
I was working outside, and your group leaders came over to chat. Right there on the sidewalk, in that wonderful sunshine, we had a prayer spoken by a beautiful young person. As she spoke, you could feel the love of Jesus Christ surround us. The group left behind not only a cleaner neighborhood, but one where the Christian spirit still seems to linger. Those are your sons and daughters. There's hope for the next generation. That's, that's love. That's love in action. It's kindness. Now, in the same verse, we take the diamond now and look at it in a different light, in a negative light. After two positive characteristics, he begins a litany of eight negative characteristics, and we're going to look at the first three this morning. Now, again, just, just for the sake of framing this whole thing in your mind, why eight negative characteristics? He lists seven positive altogether and eight negative. What's up with that? Well, what's up with that is he's writing, writing to a group called the Corinthians. And if you have read the book of 1 Corinthians and you read the list of negative characteristics that love is not, you understand. You understand that that's how they were acting and you read a characteristic, oh, I remember that one in chapter 2. And, oh, yeah, that one's right there in chapter 4. And It's right out of the Corinthian file. This is what Paul is saying. Corinthians, you're to love. And what is love, you ask? Love is what you're not practicing. Love is not envious. Love is not puffed up, etc. Let's look at them. Love does not envy. Well, that makes perfect sense. You can't have envy and love at the same time for a person. You can't have jealousy and love. They're mutually exclusive. They're enemies of each other. And yet, envy has been around a long time. As long as there have been people on the earth, there has been jealousy, right? You open the first chapter of the Bible and you come to the, the Spirit of God moving over the waters and God creating things in the next chapters and then... One of the first stories you come to is a story of envy, Cain and Abel. Cain, envious of his brother, jealous, kills him. You read a few more chapters and you come to a guy named Joseph and all of his brothers envious over his position with his own father. Now, envy has a couple forms. Follow me here. One is a bad form and one is a worse form. The bad form is the selfish form of envy. And uh, the selfish form of envy asks, what about me? What about my needs? And, And you see something that somebody else has, a new car, a new item, a new dress, whatever, and you think, why don't I have that? I I should be the one that gets the attention that person's getting. What about me? Then there's a, a second form, it's worse. It's more destructive. And this is the hurtful form that says, not what about me, but what about him? What about her? Why does she have that? Why does he get to do that? In fact, I'd like to make sure they don't get that. They don't do that. And that was the form of envy that Solomon saw in a woman. Remember the story of the woman whose infant son died and she stole her friend's baby and said, this is my baby. And the friend said, no, it's my baby. Yours died. And so they went before the king, King Solomon, and they both said, it's my baby. Remember what Solomon said? Solomon said, get a sword, cut the baby in half. You take half, you take half. 
Now, he wasn't thinking it was really going to happen. He was doing it as a test. Because you know what would happen. The real mother said, you can raise my baby. It's yours, really. This is the real mother. And she would sacrifice even the relationship with the baby to make sure that that baby lived. Solomon knew that's the real mother. While the fake mother was so envious, she was willing to see a life get killed and have a baby die just to see that other woman not have it. That's the worst form of envy. And you know what? We all fight it. We all fight jealousy and envy. We do. And you know what the reason is? The reason is this. There's always somebody else that's just a little bit better than we are. A little bit prettier than we are. A little bit wealthier than we are. Has a little more talent than we have. And our first natural feelings are feelings of ill will toward that person. We all fight that. But love means, I love you, I will not enter into competition mode with you. You're not my rival. You're not my enemy. If you have something, great. You're doing something cool, great. I'll rejoice with you. Especially in the church. Listen carefully. We cannot compete with each other. We dare not compete. The Corinthians were doing that. That wasn't love. That was envy. One of the most insipid, one of the worst forms of envy is found in the ministry. It's found between churches, between pastors, between ministries. There's this sense of competition. You know, we're trying to get more people in the church and more so. Why? When I sent a young man to a town some years ago of 500,000 people, to pastor a church, to start a church. The first phone call I got was not, thank you for sending someone to teach the Bible. I got a call from a guy who had started a church on the other side of town 30 minutes away and was angry that I sent the guy to his town. Why would you send him here to start a church? Well, there's already a church. There's already a church. Well, you know, churches that are similar. There should Would to God there were much more. Many more churches, much more evangelism, more Bible teaching. Hey, if you want to start five churches across the street, great. We don't need less, we need more. We're not in competition mode. We're in complementary mode. There's enough heathens to go around (laughs) that need to hear the gospel and need to be loved and need to be saved and enough believers that need to be discipled. We don't need to compete. We don't need less, we need more. Now, what do you do? What do you do if you are the brunt of envy? Somebody's envious at you, and you're feeling the the harsh sting of their remarks or their attitudes or their actions toward you. What do you do? So I know what to do. I rebuke them in Jesus' name. And then I buy them this tape. That's what I do. I'm going to buy them this tape. I got something better. This is what Jesus said you're to do. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. That's what he said to do. I think it's better if I just buy that tape. It's a lot easier. It's a few bucks well spent. It's harder but better if you bless and you pray and you help. 
There's a little book I have on my bookshelf written by a pastor about this exact problem with a pastor of another church. This is what he says. There was a man from my former denomination who became my enemy some time ago. He said I was not being faithful to the church. Eventually he started to hate me. During one of the conventions that we attended, I went over to him and I said, Hello, how are you? And I gave him a hug. Don't hug me, he growled. Now, this isn't just person to person. This is Christian to Christian. This is pastor to pastor. Don't hug me, he growled. Well, I love you, I replied. You can't love me because I am your enemy. He was almost shouting. I said, praise the Lord. I didn't know that you were my enemy, but here's an opportunity for me to love my enemies. And then he started praying, thank you, Jesus, for my precious enemy. And he concludes after telling more of the story. You know something? He said, within a year I was preaching at his church. That's what you do. You pray for those. You bless those who curse you. So, love does not envy. Second in the negative list, love does not parade itself. Doesn't need to be in the limelight. Doesn't need the conversation to always be on her or on him. Now, um, the word literally here for parade itself means to brag. Or, or even more literally, to be a windbag. That's descriptive, isn't it? Don't be a windbag, Paul is saying. Don't parade yourself. This is the flip side of envy. They go hand in hand. Envy is where you want something that somebody else has. Bragging is when you get others to want what you have. Envy puts others down. Bragging puts yourself up. And when you brag, you just can't stand it when somebody else is is being talked about in a conversation. Well, let me tell you about me. No, wait a minute. I did that too, you know. Do you ever remember once in the New Testament reading of Jesus bragging about his ministry? Now, of course, he was God. He had every reason to brag. But do you ever remember him saying, excuse me, do you know who I am here? I'm God. I'd like to be at the front of the line. Thank you. Did he ever brag? No, it says in Philippians 2, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing and took the humble position of a slave. He never walked by a mountain with his disciples and say, you know, I made that. Pretty good, huh? You like that? Watch this. Another one. How'd you like that? Now you might say, no, wait a minute. Jesus walked on the water. He did, but he didn't do it every time. He did it in giving a lesson to his disciples. But the next time he went across the Sea of Galilee, he didn't say, you take the boat, I'll walk. (laughs) He took the boat with them. Yeah, but he turned water into wine, but not every time. He didn't do it at the Last Supper. He didn't say, what would you like, a Diet Coke? Hadn't been invented yet, but there you go. (laughs) Tea. No, in fact, what we read about Jesus is that when he did miraculous things for about three years, he kept telling people, now don't tell anybody about this. Don't make a big deal. Wait a minute, I've been healed of an incurable disease. Don't tell anybody. The only time that he revealed himself very openly was at the end of his 
messianic career when he's about to be crucified and he comes in on the Mount of Olives and he is allowed to be proclaimed as the King and as the Lord, as the Messiah, and they worship him and praise him. He had every reason to brag, but he did not. Third, on the negative side, and we close with this, love is not arrogant. Or it says here, love, great word again, love is not puffed up. It means to have inflated ideas about your own importance. This is, uh, it's a little bit different than bragging. This is in the mind. You see, this is where you actually believe that you're special, that you're better. It's where you actually believe your own press. This is where it gets really dangerous. Well, I really am that cool. And that was a problem with the Corinthians. It was one of the things Paul had to constantly write against. Several times he uses the word puffed up. Back in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I write this, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. Remember when they said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. In the same chapter, he says, now some of you are puffed up. In the next chapter, chapter 5, they had tolerated a case of sexual immorality in the church, the worst form, incest. And they thought, you know, we're so edgy, we're so cool, we're so liberal, we just tolerate it. And Paul says, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. He says, oh, you think it's really cool and very generous. You should be mourning this condition. So they were puffed up about spiritual gifts, about spiritual knowledge, about spiritual leaders, and even about tolerating evil. And Paul writes to this this church, And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love builds up. Arrogance is big-headed. Love is big-hearted. So what a gem. In just five of these facets, what what an incredible jewel that is so different. And now we understand verse 13. And the greatest of these is love. Let's review those five facets. Love is long-tempered non-retaliatory. It is helpful, benevolent, kind, wanting to give rather than to get. It is complementary, not competitive. Love seeks to build others up. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? What do you need? How can I add to that? Rather than, what are you going to give me? Love. I want to conclude by something I think is very, very profound. I want you to listen carefully. It's a short paragraph written by C.S. Lewis in his work, The Four Loves. I'm just waiting a moment. Everybody gets the Bible zipped, ready to go. Now listen. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Remember what we just read? Love suffers. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. To love is to be vulnerable, to be broken. Love suffers. We don't think about that when we enter into friendships, relationships. I I, I hear young couples, and I I love to hear it so much. Oh, we love each other. We don't have a single problem. (laughs) Not one. We're so in love. I said, that's good. Good. Because it's going to change. (laughs) And you'll need that love. You'll need that love to stay together. And it's especially dangerous when the young... A young person says, yeah, but you know, I'm really a great person, a great find, a great catch. Then I know the other person's already suffering. (laughs) And it's a long, hard haul. But you see, true love is willing to suffer long. And even that hardship to show kindness rather than say, I'm suffering long. This hurts. But I want to put my eyes on you now, and how can I help you and be kind to you and not envy your position, but bless you? Because, you know, when you start living that way, the world's going to look at us and go, wow, I want part of that. Lord, that is your character. And we are your children Of whom it is written, be imitators of God as dear children. Well, Lord, we know it's a tough act to follow, but we also know that you have given us a new nature. It makes it possible because your spirit lives in us. And yes, we know we fail. And we're so grateful that you suffer long with us. You're kind to us. Lord, I pray. I pray for change in our attitudes. We know we're going to see a change when we start seeing a change in our actions. We know that our heart is changing when it manifests itself in real practice. We know this is not easy. But we know it's necessary. Do your work in us, Lord. Don't let us go. Don't let us squirm away from this one. The real work now begins when the sermon is over. This week, you're going to be giving us plenty of opportunities to suffer long. Plenty of opportunities to be kind to those who are unkind. It's probably going to happen as soon as we walk out the door. Help us, Lord, as your children. And Father, if some have come who have never personally experienced your love lavished upon them at the cross in forgiveness that they'd come to know you today in Jesus' name. Amen.